0: I'd like to talk about cultivating a wholesome and happy attitude within life. To talk about daily life practice of some sort. I will talk about ways of being in daily life tonight, and tomorrow we'll say more about some of the more practical aspects with respect to daily life practice. I first thought this would be quite less deep or profound than what we do while we're on retreat. And then as I wrote this talk, looking at ingredients that uh, are useful and helpful in daily practice, I found, interestingly enough, that here again, really, the same inner qualities that are essential, same qualities that are essential in formal meditation and retreat are essential in the practice out there, even though it may look a little different. I'll talk about six aspects or qualities, and I'm sure there are others, too, probably quite many others equally important, which I won't mention in this talk. The qualities I find relevant and I want to talk about are an altruistic or compassionate motivation, and generosity, and equanimity, then wise humor, then something like non complexity in terms of our expectations and ideas, and the last one gratefulness, appreciation and joy. First I would like to look at an altruistic outlook in life. This refers to an inner attitude which increasingly cares for the welfare of others, and is a bit less concerned about one's own welfare. Though that's not one of the easiest of all the spiritual practices, it is one of the most powerful and effective ones. An altruistic inner attitude makes our heart And are they a lot more open and wide? On the other hand, self-centeredness is the cause for inner narrowness and limitation. An American Zen teacher once gave an indecent but apt illustration of a self-centered attitude, which I like to repeat here and apologize in advance. <coughs> says, in the self-centered, egocentric mode, we believe to be this little piece of crap around which the entire universe revolves, and in this we often don't notice that it smells badly, and especially that there would actually be six billion centers of the universe. That's as many human beings are on this earth. To not find oneself really good enough, to find oneself not quite okay, not quite up to how one should be, on one hand and on the other hand, to somehow feel or think or hope that everything, or experience the world in a way as if everything would be revolving around oneself. Very limited, very limiting. When we have a cold, when our train is late, when we don't get the job we want it, when our partners leave, when the tax bill comes and turns out to be than and thought which it does quite often, then it's not that hard, not half as tragical, not really so irritating if we can keep things in perspective, if we can see things in relation to the rest of humanity. For example, while we suffer from maybe hay fever or some other allergy, six people, mostly children, die per minute because they don't have access to clean water. While our train is nine minutes late, innumerable people in this world don't have access to transportation at all. We can sort of open to everybody's predicament. Nine minutes isn't so bad. When our attention increasingly turns to others, our own pleasure and pain doesn't matter so much, becomes less important. It's a way of unburdening oneself, it's a way of creating inner spaciousness. It's a part that really can be built in in our meditation. When you sit down to practice, if you take just a minute to remember, maybe it's not just to practice for ourselves, maybe because it feels good or we hope to get some more insight or make it easier to move through life, but that it could be for a more profound reason, that we try to practice and transform ourselves to be of better use for others, to be of greater help for beings around us, and in that way we can create an attitude where there is more light, more serenity, more ease for us, for ourselves, and those around us. Shantideva, the 8th century Indian poet and Bodhisattva wrote, the childish are constantly concerned with themselves. The Buddha at all times care for others. Just look at the difference between them. An altruistic attitude creates a sense of inner spaciousness, of ease and of connectedness. Very helpful if you remember in your An attitude of openness and generosity helps, too. I find it's a really very important practice in daily life. Maybe it's one of the most important ones because it's so applicable. When I gave this talk recently, someone afterwards rightly pointed out that it's questionable to talk about generosity at the end of the retreat when it's about time for the donation boxes to come out. And I guess it's true, but the end of the retreat is a the time to talk about daily life practice. So um, I'll take the risk and talk about it anyway. It's one of my uh, Burmese teachers, actually, who's a very famous teacher in the West. He uh, never did talk about generosity, probably for this reason. But um, he came out of a culture where giving is seen as extremely important and extremely precious uh, attitude to cultivate in oneself. So, since it is a wonderful attitude and quality in life, and it's such a Dharma force, not talking about it would be a shame. And it needs to be explained in our culture. Generosity is not so obvious anymore in our era of greed and consumerism. Here so often we are busy and concerned with with what we can get out of situations. situation what we can get out for ourselves, what we could acquire, acquire, buy, gain, own. In terms of money, in terms of materials, in terms of all kinds of things like furniture and clothes, pleasures and fun and entertainment and cultural events and books and CDs and videos and DVDs, or how we could get more in terms of attention, get more affection, get more respect, or honor, or status, or endless list of things I want, I need for myself. And that can be quite trying and tiresome, and often not very wholesome, because the unwholesome opposite of generosity is at work here, namely desire, craving, longing, addiction, attachment, hoarding, even stinginess. When those forces are operating, then there's a feeling, an inner feeling of shortage, that we experience. If we function in this mode, there's a sense of inner poverty, independently of how much we actually have. Because we need, it's clear we don't have enough. When we need, we feel that what is here is not good enough. It should be different, it should be more. It's the complete opposite when we are generous, big-hearted, open-handed, charitable, benevolent, hospitable, and tolerant. That in itself is already a wholesome, happy, and serene attitude within life. The moment we are generous, it feels very different. There is a sense of Connectedness then, sense of bonding, we feel connected to those we have been generous towards, whether it's material things or attention or affection that we offer, or time, or our skill, or whatever. Whenever we are generous, there's a sense of inner wealth, of inner abundance. Whether we give money to a street musician or give a gift to a child, or pass on our knowledge, show someone the way, offer a friendly hello, give our full attention to our partner, or send our entire fortune to Namibia, we feel abundance if it's genuine generosity. We feel joy, we feel serenity and ease. And in addition, we each time when we generous, we plant the seeds of wholesome actions in our hearts and strengthen that wholesome tendency. A story I'd like to share. I don't know if it's a true story. I heard that it actually happened. But the golfer don't know the name. It's a story about goodness of heart and and kind of spontaneous goodness and generosity. This golfer had won a tournament and uh, he got a big sum of money right there for first prize. And when he left the place later on, he went to his car and there a young woman approached him. And she said, please help me. I have no husband, I have no job, I have no money. And my baby is very ill and uh, needs treatment at the hospital and I can't afford it. It's very serious. And uh, he was moved and he believed her and he gave her all the money right there. And some days later, he went back to the club, and his friends were there, and they had heard about the whole story. And they knew the woman, and they said, you know, this woman actually is a swindler. Her baby isn't ill at all. Her baby actually is perfectly healthy and well. And upon hearing this, he lit up and smiled and said, the baby is well. Best news in weeks. Some of you may be familiar with the radical verse about generosity from Buddhist texts. It shows how much our thinking usually is upside down, really, and it shows what the actual facts are. What the Buddha points point at here starts to make sense when we begin to understand that it's the inner attitudes and tendencies of our hearts and minds which are responsible for our happiness and well-being and not the outer circumstances or our possessions or anything like that. Here's the text, that what we give away is ours. What we keep at home is not ours. What we give away is of value. What we keep at home is of no value. What we give away we don't need to protect. What we keep at home we need to protect. What we give away causes no worry. What we keep at home causes worries. What we give away causes inexhaustible wealth. What we keep at home will be exhausted. What we keep at home leads to negativity. What we give away leads directly to enlightenment. So far, the Buddha. The exact same statement. But much shorter is on one of the CDs of the pop band Young Radicals. It says the title, You Get What You Give. Thanks, that's cool. In that respect, I've been uh, very impressed by my Indian Vipassana teacher, Anagarika Munindra, who passed away about a year ago in India. He never had any possessions, and his pockets somehow had big holes. Whatever found its way into his pockets immediately was passed on and shared. He would be in the United States, and I heard that he went back with seven suitcases. He somehow collected all the stuff, you know, there's so much in in the West, like clothes and shoes and everything to bring home, and and, and, uh, uh, he was living in in Kolkata, and uh, not in the richest parts of Kolkata. Living like that, it's not an easy thing if you live among the very poor of India, which he did. And yet, he was one of the most happy, and most easy-going people I've ever known. So there's the altruistic motivation, there's generosity, equanimity helps, and not just as a factor of enlightenment, the way we saw it the other day. So often we are plagued by reactivity, also, in our daily life. This constant attachment and grasping to what is pleasant is really tiresome. Constant desire and craving and expectation for what may be pleasant in the future is tiresome. Constant aversion or irritation against what is unpleasant or painful is very tiresome constant worry and fear of what possibly may be unpleasant or painful in in the future. It's very tiresome. It's really bad enough that we have to experience what is unpleasant and painful in life, and we do have to experience those things. And it's bad enough that pleasant experience keeps on changing and eventually disappearing. But to react in addition to it with an unwholesome, unhelpful way of of reacting, that kind of emotion, thought, and action. It's extremely patient. Far from a wholesome, happy, and serene way of living our life. Here, equanimity is the ultimate solution. It is the quality of heart and mind that makes inner freedom possible. The well-known Zen verse perhaps conveys the sense of this. Let the bird fly in the boundless sky of your equanimity. Free the fish <coughs> from the bottomless ocean of your tolerance. It's really about inner spaciousness. And to remember what this equanimity consists of, it comes about to accepting and letting go, it's either of them, Except acceptance or you could say letting be of the undesirable, the tiresome, the unpleasant experience or situation. It is unpleasant when our colleague at work is unfriendly. When a coffee is cold, when the weather is freezing, when in addition we produce disappointment or anger or bad mood. That's really not very helpful. And yet, so often we get caught in this again and again. Quite amazing. Acceptance would be the easiest and most practical solution. It's unpleasant, we accept, the problem is solved. Of course, we can lodge a complaint with the waiter, you know, about the cold coffee, if we think that's of help. But to get upset doesn't help. It's letting go. It's unpleasant when our friendly colleague leaves the job, when our exciting Saturday night is over when the precious wonderful beautiful rose fades when pleasant and beautiful things pass when in addition we produce attachment disappointment grief it's really not very helpful to look do we do that in small things in daily life can we leave it Letting go there would be the easiest and most practical solution. We see that something that we like, we find, desirable, pleasant, changes, disappears or already has gone. We can just let go. The problem is solved. But we need to remember that possibility right in the moment. And undo it. We don't need to be deeply enlightened and profoundly equanimous to make our life wholesome, happy and easy. But some equanimity definitely helps. Here's a description. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbor travel to fantastic places without the twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. So altruistic, <laughs> compassionate motivation, generosity, equanimity, wise humor helps. So often we take ourselves that serious. When everything works out the way we wish for, okay, then we're sort of happy. But sometimes even then, we're so serious, or even grim, that we forget that we're actually fine. So even when everything works out the way we want, sometimes we forget that we could be happy and at ease. But especially when we have or when we get what we'd rather not have, when we don't have, don't get what we really would like to have, can we smile in a situation where we are? in trouble, ourselves. I think here is where wise humor comes in, if we remember. It's sometimes really dramatic, and if you have some distance, it's really funny. It's a little painful, but if we create some distance, we we can see, compared to the universe, compared to history, from the Big Bang to, to the collapse of the cosmos, my momentary problem isn't really that enormous. And uh, at this point, I have to confess that I have a, a language problem. In my last vacation, I translated this talks into English, and when I got to this point, I found that the one-liners I had just didn't work in English. And I didn't know any English ones. I don't know one-liners in English the puns playing on words, which you can't translate. But it seems weird to talk about humor without saying anything funny. (laughs) So I'll read you this profound story. A seeker of truth decided to inquire into the meaning of life. He set out on a long troublesome journey to the Himalayas to find his guru. He climbed steep mountains and crossed dangerous torrents. At last, with great efforts and hardship, he found the guru, who lived up there in a cave. Completely exhausted having arrived there, he prostrated in front of the guru and he asked him, Tell me, what is the meaning of life? Life is like an onion, the master replied. Life is like an onion? cried the man in utter disappointment. All right, all right, the Guru said. Then life is not like an onion. <laughs> and if you're not sure what this story is telling us, I'm not sure either. <laughs> but it must be really profound. <laughs> Humor opens and widens our perspective with respect to ourselves and all of life. But it isn't humor at someone else's expense, really. You know, humor is making fun of someone else or a person or a group of people, even though that can really be funny sometimes. But it's not exactly wholesome, not really so wise. Humor, being able to laugh about oneself. That's very freeing, lightening, easing. Lao Tzu said about the Tao, the all, the entire universe. If one can't laugh about it, it cannot be called the Tao. It's an altruistic attitude its generosity, equanimity, wise, humor. An aspect that I find very important in daily life, but can't, can't name precisely, is uh, non-complexity or simplicity. Instead of complex demands or expectations or, or fixed uh, fixed ideas about Things and how they should be. I'll give you some examples. In a way, it's the same point as the previous one on equanimity. Here it's about smaller things, little things of daily life. Maybe we have booked vacations on the beach, on the ocean, somewhere. And we have been looking forward to it, and it's wonderful, you know, finally our vacation time is here, we fly there, wherever it may be, and we are very happy, and we walk down to the beach, and we find out that it's not really a sand beach, it's gravel. It's quite big gravel. It happens in some places, I don't know if you have seen gravel beaches. It wasn't uh, mentioned on the prospectus. It wasn't mentioned on the brochure we got from the travel agent. It looks like far out. Are we free enough to say sand would be much nicer to play and to lie on, but let's enjoy our vacation rather than having our vacation ruined because of gravel instead of sand? And I don't know if you get a sense how sometimes we can say, mm. you know, we see it, we know, we can't change it, and we go on and on and on and on. And so a little each time we go to the beach, each time we pass it, each time we remember it, because... Mm. Or we're looking forward to a good dinner, maybe it's a birthday party or some other celebration, and um, we've ordered a very good meal. It's, in a restaurant on a Saturday night and they're very busy, so finally the meal comes. Unfortunately it's not really hot anymore. It's actually much too cold. And, you know, we could tell them to take it back, but you know it's going to take much too long because they're so busy. Again, can we now we can now have our celebration be spoiled or we can celebrate with a lukewarm meal and be happy, completely happy and at ease. And it's a choice. We buy tulip bulbs in fall, red tulips. We plant them in good places. Spring comes and what do we see? Yellow tulips. On the package, they were red, okay? <laughs> and yellow tulips are gross, they're ugly. <laughs> All of spring ruined. <laughs> Here's the story of the lawn and the dandelion. It's from your book. A man who took great pride in his lawn found himself with a large crop of dandelions. And uh, back in Switzerland, I always say this story must come from England, where the perfect lawn was invented. (coughs) This man tried every method he knew to get rid of the dandelions. Still, they plagued him. Finally, he wrote to the Department of Agriculture. He enumerated all the things he had tried and closed his letter with the question, What shall I do now?" In due course, the reply came, We suggest you learn to love them. (laughs) There are plenty of little things in life we have an idea of how they should be. And we hardly even notice that we have a fixed idea about it. And it can be anywhere, with friends eating, roommates with our meditation teachers and driving and traffic. They have a lot of ideas how others should behave in traffic. To see that and, and see how long do we hold on to our unmet ideas about how it should be. How quickly can we let go and be at ease again? altruistic attitude, generosity, equanimity, our humor, non-complexity with regards to our ideas and expectations. Gratefulness, appreciation and sympathetic joy help in terms of a open, skillful and happy attitude within life. Murita, the Pali word for this appreciation and sympathetic joy, is one of the most beautiful, most simple and most pleasant practices, I think, together with generosity. And opportunities for it arise constantly in our day. The art is to see them, to be able to appreciate them, rejoice in them. Someone someone is laughing, is joyful. Someone is friendly with someone else. Someone has been winning. Someone has success. Someone receives praise. Someone is healthy. Plenty of reasons to rejoice. A person is generous. Someone is honest someone is wise or serene. Plenty of reason for appreciation. We ourselves, we have a comfortable apartment or an okay apartment. We have enough to eat. The sky doesn't fall on our head. All good reasons to be grateful. The problem is that we forget just like Joe, the village priest and his rather cynical friend, Joe, they're strolling through a beautiful, snow-din landscape. And the priest looks around and exclaims in awe, Look, isn't it wonderful how God has this lake frozen? Whereupon Joe remarked, No big achievement in winter. But the question is, do we take too many things for granted? (laughs) Gratefulness, appreciation, rejoicing, extremely precious. The Dalai Lama says if we can rejoice in the good qualities and deeds of others, we automatically take part in the powerful energy that radiates from these good qualities. And this quality of appreciation and sympathetic joy can be cultivated and practiced. Often it's quite difficult for us to rejoice in others' happiness and goodness because we may have quite a lack of genuine respect and appreciation for ourselves and the lack of appreciation for our own good qualities, maybe to do with our Judeo-Christian Western cultural conditioning. The more we feel worthless at some deeper level, the less respect and appreciation we have for ourselves the more we will be self centered and tight, uptight somehow. The more appreciation there is, the more self-appreciation there is, the more we feel connected with life as a whole and feel freer and more at ease. That's why it's so important to work with self-appreciation. It's so much more uplifting than always judging ourselves. Rumi asks and says, When you go to a garden, do you look at thorns or at flowers? Spend more time with roses and jasmine. We can begin by reflecting on and then rejoicing in our own good qualities of heart and mind. And then do the same with those of others. It's helpful to be specific when we do that. To think of our interest—that's something we have been doing at the end of the last sitting, in the evening. Think of our interest: interest in life, interest in understanding ourselves, interest in understanding each other. To um, Think of the qualities we cultivate, investigation of reality, patience, perseverance, enthusiasm, collectedness. We're inside, wisdom, loving kindness and care, compassion, generosity, trust, equanimity. They're fabulous qualities. And we begin to radiate and shine forth those qualities. We can reflect on our own wholesome and positive deeds and actions. It's very interesting to write that down sometimes. Make yourself a list. We think, oh yes, maybe we remember once, but then we don't find any really because we find some, but then we think, oh yes, but I did that because of some other reason, or yes, but that's really nothing, anyone would do that. And we go through a few good things with it, and somehow they're not worthwhile. Write down. Our efforts to care for children or parents, support, family support, relatives, our work, maybe, that supports others in so many ways, our work as therapists, or as managers, or as teachers, or as bakers, or as whatever. Almost anything we do that isn't harming beings. We do it out of goodness, kindness, generosity, or somewhat out of goodness. It's something to appreciate, to rejoice in whatever it may be, even when we get a salary for it, because we need to get a salary to live, we can still do it out of a good heart and be happy about it, respect ourselves for doing it. Or the small gifts we make, in cakes or flowers or contributions of any kind. Or to rejoice in our ethical integrity in our conduct. And we can remember, always remember the few things we didn't do so well, we failed, and forget all the things and all the situations where we have done really well. Maybe to remember our intention not to kill or to harm beings, not to steal, not to take what hasn't been given to us. Rejoicing in our sensitivity and clarity in intimate relationships, our sensibility in dealing with drugs and alcohol and money and power. Rejoicing in our honesty. Plenty of reason for respect, for appreciation, for joy. And if it's too general, make it specific. Say, you know, rejoicing in that time when I was honest there, in that time when I was honest there. If you don't want to, if you can't just say, I'm generally very honest, if that's too much to say, then make it specific. Whenever we have been really skillful in that way, to rejoice in the fact of doing retreat, or outside the retreat, to rejoice in reading, studying Dharma books out of interest in spiritual growth, or being concerned with human rights, or writing a for amnesty, for prisoners, if that's what you care for, or supporting, I don't know, greed, peace, or Médecins Sans Frontières, or political in- initiatives uh, for social justice, justice, or against manufacturing of arms, or for peace, or work in the neighbourhood, or work in your family, supporting projects, or simply for being friendly with your difficult neighbor, or rejoicing and being friendly with your friendly neighbor. It's also very good. Encouraging others, praising others, to see that really there's not plenty of reasons to rejoice and appreciate. and we find it then easier to do the same with respect to others, appreciating their wholesome, positive deeds and actions. Good practice. Next we can reflect on our own happiness or our happinesses and well-being, our successes in various areas, on our good fortune. Rejoice and appreciate in appreciating that. Then again, do this with others' happinesses and well being and successes. We often simply don't remember that something we can do. The worldly things we can rejoice in and their more spiritual things we can read or hear from the Mangala Sutta, a discourse by the Buddha on blessings. It's a discourse on what is valuable and beautiful in life. And there, many of these qualities I just mentioned, are again listed as special blessings. And then it goes on. The greatest blessings are To be content and grateful. To hear the Dharma at the right time. To deeply understand the noble truth of suffering and of its end. To realize liberation, the unconditioned. This is the highest blessing. Heart and mind unshaken by worldly states. Sorrowlessness, painless and secure, secure, this is the highest blessing. Those who live in this way are everywhere unshakable, and find well-being everywhere. This is the highest blessing. Altruistic motivation, generosity, equanimity, wise humor, non-complexity, and appreciation. All ways of cultivating a wholesome, happy attitude of ease in our daily life. I just need to actually do it. Just quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.